What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker magazine. Remnick began editing The New Yorker in 1998. Before then, he was a staff writer for the magazine, and before that, a Moscow correspondent for The Washington Post. His coverage of the fall of communism later became the book Lenin's Tomb, which won the Pulitzer Prize. In addition to editing the magazine, Remnick, who is now 59, continues to write frequently on Russia, Israel, music, Donald Trump, and other subjects. He also hosts the New Yorker Radio Hour, a weekly podcast which you can download and subscribe to after you subscribe to this one. What you're about to hear is part one of our conversation. Part two will be up next week. In that conversation, we discuss the future of The New Yorker, possible changes to the magazine, ideological diversity, and a bunch of other things. This one is a little bit more political-focused. So here it is. David, thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. Good to see you. It's good to see you. I uh, I wanted to start, you just did a big feature about Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And in the piece, you mention uh, an experience 20 plus years ago where you met Hillary Clinton at a, at a dinner uh, or some event. And... I was curious, spending time with her now after going through this horrific thing, um, what you made of her and the way she's changed as someone who's been observing her for two plus decades. Well, unlike a lot of journalists who've spent tons of time with the Clintons over the years, I have not. I have have not. Um, I wrote a long profile of Bill Clinton in his post-presidency and went around Africa and and it was was the lead up to her announcement that she was going to run in 2008. Um, but it, it, whatever contact I've had, to, to be, just be clear, has been intermittent. But I do really distinctly remember this. This was in, in 1993. I had just come back, maybe a year back from Moscow, where I'd been posted for the Washington Post. And the Clintons were in that early stage of um, combativeness with the press. And, and obviously there was a lot more to come. And, and to come, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Many, many years of it to come. And the late Michael Kelly, who went on to be the editor of 
The New Republic and The Atlantic and a writer for The New Yorker and The New York Times Magazine and then and died in Iraq at the very beginning of the Iraq War, the Second Iraq War, wrote a scathing profile of her. You remember this cover? It's maybe it's before your time to remember maybe, but it, it was her in white against a white background. The cover line in The New York Times Magazine was St. Hillary. And it she came out of it looking like the most sanctimonious and power-hungry person on earth. She came out looking terrible, and she knew it. And Michael clearly had no great uh, affection for Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton, or Al Gore, as it turned out when um, he came to Almost his... pathological, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, your word. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and so they had a dinner at the White House, not a state dinner, not a, you know, a, an affair of state in any way, but there, there seemed to me, my wife and I went, very young at the time, and I got plunked next to Hillary Clinton. And for the better part of the dinner, she talked about this uh, piece. She was really obsessed with it, didn't know why it had happened, was in that early stage of uh, uh, questioning the motives of the New York Times. There was no bright part. Drudge hadn't even appeared. There was no... If there was a vast right-wing conspiracy, it was only taking shape out of sight in, in, in the form of what Sidney Blumenthal would then call a counter-establishment. Um, but I, I really, that was the thing that was most memorable to me all those years later was her um, animosity to the, not just Michael Kelly in that piece, but her feeling that th this force was uh, pitted against her and him. And what about now? What did you make of her spending time with, or, you know, interviewing her? And, and what did you make of the book? Well, her previous books were almost willfully, uh, assertively uninteresting. They were products. They were either to um, create an image or to um, reach out to a constituency or, or something like that, or in the case of the uh, living history to have a... Uh, she did what... Politicians have been doing since the year Z, since since Andrew Jackson, and in, in the myth of the you know the myths of the log cabin and so on. Politicians try to create a mythos for themselves, infused with with truth and true stories. They were boring books, you know, written by committee. This book is pretty raw, and not just by Hillary Clinton standards. It is um, there's no office left to run for, and. She certainly is not the first person to lose an election to write a book. A lot of people have lost elections and, and written a book. And it's angry. And it's um, self-lacerating. And it's questioning. And I thought there was a lot of humanity in it. And a lot of people are so angry at what happened in the election, understandably. I think we share that. So um, at a loss when, when it comes to Donald Trump that they just want to blame everything on her and tell her shut up and go away and disappear from the p political scene. I, I think that's what, – what, what did you make of her critique of the press? You know, when I was at the Washington Post, the legendary Ben Bradley was the editor and he used to say every time we got criticized in some way, he used to say, now don't. Get, don't get into a defensive crouch. Um, so I won't. 
but I think the idea that the only thing that anybody ever covered about Hillary Clinton in this whole campaign was emails is, is just demonstrably wrong. But the larger points about email obsession, which was a, a colossal mistake, make no mistake of, of it. She made a colossal mistake with that private email server for reasons we can, you know, mull over. Um, Although in hindsight, colossal, it seems like minor, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah, I, that's the, point that's well, the complication. Totally yeah. point well taken. I, I Look, she's seeing it all through the prism of, understandably, the behavior of the other guy who's you know, um, vacuousness and dishonesty and uh, c- cynicism, his, his, his encouragement and, and, and an inflammation of the ugliest currents of American politics and psychology, I think are indisputable. Indisputable. To say nothing of Russian involvement in, in the election and we don't know all the details of this, but even the frame of it is like some horrific movie. So she's writing a, 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 in, in that atmosphere. So I, I, I have to say, people who are utterly dismissive of her um, and who uh, just wanted to go away, I, there's something ugly about it. I haven't heard you talk or write about this, so I, I'm curious because there's there's been a debate about why she lost, and I would say or why the country was willing to give 46% of the vote to Donald Trump, more so in swing states. And I, I think broadly speaking, that debate has come down to people looking for racial and cultural explanations and people looking for economic explanations. And I know some of your writers like George Packer have weighed in on this subject. Ta-Nehisi Coates has a big mm-hmm. essay in The Atlantic mm-hmm. this month about this. W- what have you kind of made of that debate and, and where do you find yourself? How do you find yourself thinking about it? Well, it, to me, what it is is a list of empirical reasons. And the question is how you cut it up into the pie chart of w- which is the dominant reason. And there I have no great answer for you. Obviously, uh, Tanasi Coates believes that race is the predominant reason. I think it would be a caricature of his position to say he thinks it's the only reason. Um, and others, you know, are focused on other reasons. I, I don't know how to carve that pie chart up. I don't even know the dimension of some of the reasons. But I do know this. You have to start by admitting the following, that 40-odd percent of the population automatically votes Republican, no matter who it is, whether it's Donald Trump or Mitt Romney or Gorilla Monsoon. And 40-odd percent of the population votes for the Democrat, no matter who it is, Barack Obama, Michael Dukakis, or... Sean Penn. Or Sean Penn. 2020, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the whole drama is being played out, even in the most conventional election, in a fairly narrow slice of the populace, um, you could argue, you know, which is the most informed slice of the populace and what are the tactics that are, that are employed to go after that, that slice well, of the but, populace. I, yeah. I, I have no, I can't answer Isaac by saying it's 86% race and 14% misogyny and da, 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 Russia. I just don't know. I don't think you do, and I don't think I don't think Ta-Nehisi or George or anybody really knows. Well, I, I guess one, one I do know. Yeah. I do know that it's it's very clear from empirical evidence and and reporting and watching and listening and hearing that racism, misogyny, xenophobia, 
the the harnessing of certain kinds of rage um, were exploited by the man who's the president of the United States. Right. Well, just to go back, I mean, I think your point about 40% is right. And I think we may look back and say the more, truth. I mean, you know, more, it's, it's right. 46. And right. Some, you know. Right. I, I, think the, I think the really shocking thing in a way is that a candidate like him was able to get a major party nomination because that's where he could have been stopped. And once you get to but the he final two. rolled through them. No, no, no. But I'm saying historically. 16, 17 of them. It, it, you have to. That, 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 we yeah. have to grapple with this reality that, yes, a lot of them were. Um, <laughs> not political uh, forces of the highest caliber, let's say. Uh, they were awful. But he beat them. And he beat them, bing, bang, boom. And it, no, and that's what's the shocking thing, because once you get to the last two, you're going to get 40 plus percent of the vote no matter what. But I, I think one way to think about this question, I agree. And, 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 and yeah. we haven't covered her baggage. Yeah. The, the fact of the matter is the Clintons have been in the public eye for nearly four decades. And depending on your view of the Clintons, she, she was carrying so many large rocks in her knapsack uphill um, that um, there were just a hell of a lot of people that just didn't trust her, didn't like her. Now, where misogyny fits into this, where, where all kinds of unfair and, and awful things fit into this is, is, is up to us to discuss. But... Um, well, she was not, she was by no means a lock. Well, one way of thinking about it, I agree, we can't do a pie chart, is if Trump sort of doesn't deliver on making people's lives better, but does deliver on this sort of white nationalism and maintains the amount of support that I assume. But he, what does it mean to deliver on white nationalism? It to, means to, to, if, that because every, he's doing good, a pretty good job of signaling. That's what I mean. Um, he gets up every day and he makes white people feel like I'm looking out for your interests and not the interests of people who don't look like you. Well, I, w I would argue that not all white people, not even close to all white people, respond to these ugly s signalings. And I hope, it, I hope it contributes to defeating him. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask about the race thing, just which is you've written a lot about race in America um, going back many years. Uh, you've written a lot about John Lewis and Barack Obama and – just wondering when you look at kind of the I mean, I know there's a phrase about the arc of history bending towards, you know, but um, when you when you look at an issue you've been thinking about for a long time, did this fundamentally change the way you thought about it or thought about American history? I think any sentient person, even the most optimistic, has to wrestle with the reality that ugliness and evil and prejudice is not going to disappear from the face of the earth. That um, what, in, what in history would tell us that it would disappear entirely? Are, is America so exceptional that it, it can overcome a legacy of... Um, its original sins, slavery, and then Jim Crow and <laughs> Jim Crow redux, uh, absolutely and completely? I, I don't think so. So, I, I, and I'm an optimist. And if anything, the two books that I wrote about race, one about Ali, one about Obama, uh, can be criticized more from the side of me being too optimistic than 
and, and writing into certain historical moments that had, had optimism written all over it uh, than being a pessimist. But I, I, I think you have to grapple with that all the time. What have you made of the sort of new strain of writing at places like The New Yorker, places like The Atlantic? Um, Jelani Cobb, who's a staff writer here, uh-huh. ta Coates, um, writing about race in a different way than even when I was growing up, which uh, was more recent than when you were growing up. That yeah. sounded aggressive. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> but no, that, that it, it does feel very different that that— I think what it is is a function of having more African-American writers at places like, like The New Yorker. Um, when I— first got here uh, as a writer um, there was Jervis Anderson who was not writing very much the late Jervis Anderson who wrote a biography of Bayard Rustin a very good book about Harlem Hilton Alls followed Jamaica Kincaid had written for the New Yorker there had been black writers but as staff writers as, as real presences uh, you know now on the web as well as in print it was it was de minimis and I think you can look around at other publications and say the same. It's and I and I and I'm not. This is not by way of patting uh, myself or ourselves on the back, but there's just more. And there, and among those African American voices, they disagree. Califasana does not uh, agree um, in all ways with um, with Jelani Cobb or Vincent Cunningham or Alexis Acuayo or or. or Many other people who are Doreen St. Felix, a lot of people that write for us. But, um, yeah, I, th- that, that's, that's why you do this. That's why you, you go out and you seek out people who are not your um, uh, lunch buddies at um, the college you went to. What? Uh, to, to come write. What? What have you made of Ta-Nehisi Coates' writing just as someone who you said – you said about yourself a couple minutes ago was sort of fundamentally an optimist? And I think one of the things that, that – ta is fundamentally No, that you not? are. Or you said that you're writing – This is – that's the, the – look, that's that's where – I uh, he was on the first um, broadcast of uh, the New Yorker Radio Hour. That was the conversation we had. Um, it was in the wake of his first – well, a second book. And I think Tanasi is a terrific, terrific writer. I mean, you you know, if you ask me about competition with The Atlantic, of course I'm jealous of Tanasi because why any sane person would be. Doesn't mean I have to agree with him in every in every groove. I don't you know, George and I, George Packer, who just, you know, had a debate with uh Tanasi, don't agree in everything. That's not 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 trying to create a um ideologically um if anything, if anything, we're probably at times too predictable, um, and more argument is, is is better for a magazine as well as a culture. Yeah, no, I, I guess the thing I was I was sort of thinking about was it does feel like I I feel like when I was growing up that when you when you read things by liberal writers or conservative writers about race in America, mm-hmm. it, it always had this tone of things are going to get better. There's this optimism about where we're going. And I think that's that's really changed about the dialogue. And maybe you say that's just about having I think it has more. Gotten, I think it has gotten better. And when you press Tahanahasi on the overall, I think he thinks things have gotten better. It's just a co- question of what kind of time period are you talking about? Tanahasi is an extremely intelligent man, and he knows very well, you know, where things have gotten better. But he also knows how to read prison statistics, and he knows um, very well the facts 
where we are uh, dreadful in this country still on matters of race. Um, you obviously have written a lot about Obama mm-hmm. and spent a bit of time with him, I think, for your reporting. So, yeah. Um, did, did Trump's election and just what we've seen in America and American politics in the last the last two years? It's a repudiation. Well, no, but... In some, in some quarters. Again, we're talking about... Remember how what the what the margin of difference is in an election. So let's not talk about it as the nation was 100% pro Obama and then went 100% pro Trump. Let's stipulate that in the beginning. But some part of the pie chart that we're talking about has to do with some percentage of people who are rebelling against eight years of a black well, president, no, no. and that Tanahasi was writing about this. Right. No, I guess I meant. Do, does it make does it make you sort of change the way you look at Obama and Obamaism that this could follow him um, about about sort of what he was able to do as a political figure or wasn't able to do? How do you mean? What specifically? Well, I think a lot of people like myself thought that after two thousand eight, it would be very difficult that the country was in a place and he represented a brand of politics that following it up with someone like Trump was unlikely to happen. And I think I was very naive in that view. Um, But it also, it it does make me think that there's sort of, that he represents a sort of technocratic style of government Mm -hmm. and politics in some degree. He also has something else to him, but that in some way is insufficient to the current moment. And I, I was ideologically, not so much ideologically, maybe just sort of tonally and that you need a certain sort of populism, um, which is obviously a very broad word. To, huge, it's a hugely broad word. Yeah. And I, it, it ranges from, you know, Huey Long and Donald Trump and some really ugly figures in American history to someone, you know, and, and I think it's a little racially coded too, by the way. Yes. To someone who might do better at a factory floor rally in Scranton. So is Joe Biden a populist really? I, I, I It doesn't seem to me he is. Does he have a, a slightly better rap when it comes to uh, working class people? Maybe. I don't think that makes him a populist. Again, let's, let's keep one thing in mind. Donald Trump won. Donald Trump lost the popular vote by 3 million votes, and he won the Electoral College election on the, the, the margins in the states that we know. I think we should... Those of us who have the opportunity in the press or in, or in civil society and, and, and do what we can to um, uh, do our jobs, in the case of the press, is to put pressure on power, to put pressure on... Um, hatred, uh, to expose what's wrong, all the things that we're supposed to do. But let's not think that the country itself has gone from one extreme of goodness and, 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 and beauty and honey and, and milk and honey and light to now we are um, something polar opposite. This is political struggle. This is political struggle, political argument. We lost colossally. Okay, and but it's ugly, and the results are, are yet to be known. It could be just catastrophic in some ways. But it is this, – this happens in politics. This just happens to be <clears throat> the struggle of our time. 
Okay, but stipulating that, I mean, has this has this changed the way you think about Obama or his style of politics at all, or not so much? I mean, I, uh, granting that this is around the margins and Trump got, only got forty six percent, but but just the moment we're in in politics, would, would I prefer that uh, Obama be heroic in all ways and right on all questions? Sure, uh, it would be great if all he did was, um, <laughs> you know, work for do good works now. And I, I, but you know, I don't see any president. They, they all, in some, with the exception for the most part of Jimmy Carter, they all cash in and that's disappointing. It's disappointing. Does it surprise you about Obama? I don't think Obama was immune um, to the lures of the new class of wealth. I think he's very interested in in Silicon Valley, um, stars in show business and sports and, and the rest. I, I, it, it's, you know, I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he's immune to those lures. I mean, he, he, he finishes the presidency and the next thing you know, he's on a private island with Richard Branson. I'm not sure that's, you know, that doesn't make him John Lewis. He, look, he, it, this is, this is what these guys do. And it's, yeah, it's disappointing. It's, Im, it's, it's impure. <laughs> Yeah, the the Richard Branson thing it was surprised me. It's that not that just Richard. It, it, no, no, it, no, but it, it, that's your the first, circle. your first. Yeah, no, right. Um, and I, you know, I'll tell you this. I he wrote. I mean, it's overrated in the literary sense because of the role it played in politics. But he wrote a very good book as a young man. Um, it was kind of a meld of what would you call it, memoir and kind of fictionalized memoir and pushed into the shape of this becoming story. Um, the second book was, you know, just an ordinary political book by what I thought was, and I still do think, a very decent liberal. He has the chance to write the first good presidential autobiography. Um, people say that Ulysses S. Grant did with Mark Twain's help, but it's probably kind of overrated and all the rest of them are mostly garbage. Um, he could do a great service by writing a great book and not do it with speech writers and teams and all the rest. I'd, I'd love to see him write something that's, um, that grapples not only with his place in history and, 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 and racial progress and all the rest, but even the most difficult questions in the most detail, because whether it's, healthcare or Syria because um, we're still wrestling with it. Questions of intervention, non-intervention, how we deal with the disadvantage in this country. He has, there is, he could make a great contribution by writing a serious uh, book or series of books. I just hope it's not just a product. Uh, the way you said Syria to me just now, do we, I sense that maybe you think that that's a place where he needs to address his legacy and what did or didn't happen under his term. Is that how you feel or am I overreading it or? No, no, I think he has to. I think he has to. I think even if in the end you agree with he, what he did and did not do, you have to also agree that when you have a situation in which hundreds of thousands of people are killed, uh, a million, I don't know how many refugees, a million refugees, um, the destabilization not only of the Middle East, but Europe, essentially, and Europe's politics. Um, the 
I think it had some political effect the, here. The, yeah. the, the empowerment of Russia and Russian power, um, that can't be considered a good out- outcome. So what's the rationale for non-intervention? It's clearly in the wake of Iraq. It's clearly we're reacting to our uh, self-disgust, justified self-disgust with Iraq and in a more complicated way with Afghanistan. But a, a true grappling with that from the person who made the decision and series of decisions would be a value. It doesn't solve anything. It doesn't bring back the dead. It doesn't undo the decisions and non-decisions, but that would be of some importance. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. If you're in the Bay Area, I've got a live show coming up at Books, Inc. in San Francisco on September 26th. I'll be interviewing author Franklin Foer about his new book, World Without Mind. To make sure you get a seat, head to booksinc.net. That's booksinc.net. That's booksinc.net.